So my advice to people starting out would be take the smallest step and just repeat those steps again and again and again and again and again. This is Oversharing with Mikhail Alphon. What is up, you lovely listener? Welcome to another episode of Oversharing. I am super pumped for our conversation today. Our guest operates a 150-member startup accelerator for the most active venture capital investor in Texas. He's a mentor and coach to others on content creation, networking, and organic marketing. And he teaches content marketing through videos, events, workshops, and online courses. He has a really incredible story of what it was like to come over from Pakistan as an immigrant and find his way to work and then finally got the entrepreneurial bug and started starting these businesses and these workshops. So I'm excited to share his experiences with you and for myself very excited to get to know him a little bit better. But before I speak too much, Moby, why don't you say what's up to the audience and tell us a little bit about yourself. How is it going, y'all? Dude, it's so great to be on air. I like that we're wearing the same fake glasses and like <laughs> the same color of shirt on there. Okay. I first of all, they're not fake. They are, I very, know, I know. They are very real and blocking my blue light. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. But they work. I, I, it's a great purchase. If I don't find them during the day, I'm like, I, I don't want to work. Yeah, I'm all about it now too. I uh, on my phone, I constantly put on like nighttime mode so that the blue light is lower on that. And honestly, I just have a lot less of a headache at the end of the day because now, as you know, life is all about Zoom calls and Zoom podcasts. Seriously, <laughs> Moby, I don't know if you've had a chance to check out any of the episodes in the past, but one of the best ways I think to get to know somebody is to just dive a little bit into their history, but I like to take it way back and start with what were you like in high school? I was born and raised in uh, Lahore, Pakistan. I uh, was there when I was zero years old till I was 19. And then I moved to the US and I went to high school in Pakistan too. So that was the same, like the school that I went to was called Aitzen College. And I was in the same school from like when I was seven until I was 18. They went through elementary, middle and high school. And high school was this time of extreme doubt and insecurity. It was like, well, what's my place in the world? I didn't know myself. It was this time of like me trying out new things, just as I am right now, but definitely not having the confidence that I had right now. I had a great group of friends, but that was the beginning of, I think, high school is this weird time for a lot of people. Some people Mm -hmm. love it and then they (laughs) peak. And some people are like, I never want to think about it again. I really enjoyed my time in high school, uh, but that was the start of this long journey of finding myself and actually working on myself to become a more confident, more self-aware person. So you're going to the same school from, uh, I don't, was, is there kindergarten in Pakistan? Is it called kindergarten? Yes. Okay, cool. It's called kindergarten too. All right. Well, I, I, don't, know, I don't know how these work no, sometimes. I know. So you're in the same school from like kindergarten to high school. So you're actually like growing up with very much the same people unless they moved or something like that? Are you seeing the same teachers for 15 years or however long it is? Yeah, good question. Good question. The same group of 150 to 200 people. Mm. And by the way, this is a 150-year-old school. We have houses in all the elementary, middle, and high school, like Harry Potter. So I was <laughs> in five, three different houses. Literally, we had prefects. <laughs> the teachers would change from school to school and they would have different headmasters, headmistresses, and it was super cool growing up with the same group of people. Oh, oh also, by the way, this was all dudes. This is a oh. cadet-style school. 
this was all dudes. In high school, there were a bunch of fights too. But one thing that I'm grateful for is getting to know a lot of people very deeply over the years because it's the same people. And we were so insular as a community that I got to learn a lot about uh, my friends and people who were not my friends. Uh, and it was super cool. So that's really interesting. I couldn't imagine what it would be like to grow up with the same 200 people. I mean, I didn't have that many friends when I was in high school, but you had this opportunity to be diverse in your groups, right? Like I went to a high school of 3,000 people, I think was our graduating wow. class. Yeah. So there was a ton of people just in our graduating class. I mean, now you're kind of like a free thinker, you're, you're entrepreneurial, all of these things. I can only imagine that being surrounded by like the same 200 people might kind of like put all your thoughts in a vacuum type of thing. What was it like kind of exploring new ideas, new opportunities when you're growing up with the same people almost, you know, the first half of your life? When you're growing up with the same people and you go to a school which has a certain name in the place you're at, a lot of our thing was also being a little cocky and egotistical about our school because we were kind of a boarding school too. I wasn't living in the school, but a lot of people were too. And we had this egotistical streak in us like, oh, we're, we're the shit. But... <laughs> as we grew older and the first thing was the catalyst of us going out was when we were 13, 14, we looked around and thought, there are no girls in this school, man. <laughs> what are we going to do? And then we went out and I was in a band in high school uh, the last three years. And that was my catalyst to kind of go out and see more people and just see different communities. And we still had that egotistical streak, like, Oh, we're an amazing school for me. It was just cool to be part of, honestly, it was a big frat that made mm. me realize that some friends just stick with you and some don't. But it was also really helpful to go out and realize it's a, it's a huge world. And you're just one person, mm. just one island among so many. What type of music did you play in your band? We mostly covered rock. So ACDC, we also made a cover of Rihanna. That was a weird moment. Was it a rock cover of Rihanna? Yeah, yeah. Which song was it? I love Rihanna. Uh, dude, uh, I think it might have been Umbrella or one of the popular ones at that time. That sounds about right. Of, yeah, it was fun. <laughs> so you, it wasn't like a boarding school where you can't like go out or anything like that. It sounds like there was a little bit of a social life outside of that school. Is that right? Yeah. Let me give you more context about the school. Uh, when I was supposed to get in the school, I had to take an entry exam, which had swimming as part of it. <laughs> and the first, I know, I, I, from the ages of four to seven, I was very traumatically taught how to swim and I blew everyone out of the water whenever I just swam to the test. No pun intended. Got in, I know, I know. <laughs> Got in and like, it was so hard to get into that school and the swimming was so traumatizing, like the training. I took the exam, crushed everybody, went home as a seven-year-old, took another lap in that pool in the club, did not swim for 15 more years. Mm. Because I was so tra traumatized. That's did they just throw you into the deep end, like literally? Yeah, like my dad and teacher would be like, "Go figure it out. Be the best swimmer. Well, be the best swimmer there is." And like at that time, I was the best swimmer among a bunch of seven-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine so if more like interview processes were like that? Like if somebody wanted to work at Blue Light, just be like, "All right, cool. Let's see how quickly you can swim a thousand meters." I know. Make them sprint or something. That'd be yeah. just horrible. I think we might start doing that, actually. What was the curriculum like when you were at this high school? I mean, for us, I, I don't know how much you know or don't know. It's like we were very much forced to study the same thing as everybody else. Did you have any opportunities mm -hmm. to study outside of that? 
Not really. So we followed the British system, which mm-hmm. is like high school and A levels. Have you read Harry Potter, by the way? Uh, I read the first three. So Harry Potter has a system of different exams in high school. The first three years, something else, and the last two years, something else. We had that British system, which is for high school, we were working up to an exam for about three years, and that was headquartered in London. And then two years later, another set of exams. So we followed the British system pretty closely because we were British colony until 1947. Oh, wow. So you moved here right as you were graduating high school, you just graduated high school at 19 years old, correct? Yes. And that was to come to university here? On a fluke. Um, (laughs) In high school, I was studying only sciences. You could study three things, sciences, engineering, or business. Those were your three tracks. And you gave government the exams for the British government. I was told to be a doctor because my dad was a huge overachiever in his lifetime, like huge. Number one in his high school one of the best high schools in the country, went to a top number one med school and went to the government, scored out of top 10 out of 15,000 people. So I was supposed to be a doctor. I studied sciences, sciences during high school. After high school, you can actually take the MCAT in Pakistan and oh, wow. become a doctor for a much longer med school. A month before the MCAT, after studying sciences for the last five years, it was like, I'm not even studying. I don't care about this. And this started a series of fights with my parents, like, I don't want to do this. I don't know if I can do this. And eventually, I took a gap year, half a gap year. And my parents were like, okay, the U.S. is good for education. My mom's brothers had gone there. You didn't get into med school here. Just go to the U.S. and figure it out. I just applied to five universities because only public universities take in international students in the spring. I applied to five, got into the number two, Texas. I was like, yeah, I've heard of Texas. Let's go. (laughs) why didn't you want to go to med school i just didn't get it which is i didn't want to really want to be a doctor like there was Mm. nothing exciting about it number two i hated being told that i had to uh do well on an exam i just don't do well on exams and i hate being told what to do (laughs) and it was a lot of my my dad wanted it for me as a teenager i was like okay i he knows best i didn't know what i wanted at all there was no self-awareness but there was this doubt, which is like, maybe this is not for you. you mm. I took the exam for the number one med school in the country. I didn't even study for it. Mm. That's how much I cared. How does that work? Did you score well? No, I failed it. <laughs> yeah. I'm not I thought that was going to be this like crazy story of like, yeah, I didn't even study. didn't care to be a doctor, but I got like a 98% on my <laughs> NCAT. So I just bounced out on that. Did you yeah. have any idea what you were moving to the States for? Or you're just like, I got to get the hell out of here. Well, not in a bad way, got to get the hell out of here, but definitely get the hell out of here. I picked my major, economics, because it looked familiar, because my Mm. friends were doing it. Mm. No idea what I wanted to do. No idea what the expectations were going to be. No idea what I was going to do at all. So I just came to the US. My mom and dad actually flew out with me and dropped their kid out for college to Texas. And then a new kind of life started. You ended up graduating from the University of Texas at Austin, right? And was it just right after that that you moved over to Dell or did you have any work experience prior to that? College was horrible for me. Again, the whole exam thing that, ah, I couldn't do well. I didn't know how to study. I didn't really care about what I was studying. But in the middle of college, I wanted to start a business because I was like, ooh, that's something I could do. And I had this idea to help high school students with their college essays. 
I built, I made a logo because that's apparently what you think you should do when you start a business, <laughs> make a logo. It's always right? that first. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's so stupid. And I was like, oh, a copyright. Did not think about the business model. I was like, okay, I'll test this out. Maybe provide a service to high school students, sell it to their parents and help them with their college essays. I went to the international office to talk to somebody who works for the government. And I was like, hey, I want to start their business. They said, no, you cannot legally start a business while you are on a student visa in mm. the U.S. So I learned, taught myself web development and everything else. And while I was studying economics, I picked up a CS minor because of my interest in building things. And I leveraged that into an internship at Dell. And then I got an offer from Dell in my senior year. And I did not think about it. I was like, they're going to give me a visa and allow me to stay, say, in the States. I'm going to take it. I don't care what the salary is. I don't care what I do. I worked as a regulatory engineer. Regulatory engineer. That's like not economics. That's not computer science. Right. So I just took the job and I'm like, I'll figure it out. So tell me a little bit about the, what a regulatory engineer does at Dell. I didn't know about this world until I get into it. But every piece of hardware that is shipped anywhere has to meet so many requirements. Otherwise, it doesn't get into any country. California is the worst when it comes <laughs> to that. The U.S. is high. China is also very difficult. And there's actually wars, uh, like uh, diplomatic wars fought, fought over this. But it's basically whenever you ship a product of any kind, it has to meet certain worldwide agency requirements when it comes to electromagnetism, heat conduction, labels, how it's presented, uh, the flammability rating, how big it is, whether it's been certified or not. I'm sorry, flammability it, rating? Like uh, what's the likelihood that it's going to catch on fire? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sorry yeah, to interrupt. Yeah. I just needed no, to... No, no, that's a great question. Um, and I didn't know about any of this stuff. And I went there first to work as a project manager. That was my unofficial title as an IT guy. And then I got into the program management of factories doing regulation. And like at the end of four or five years, I was managing about 11 factories in regulation. And like, I had no interest in it, but I couldn't leave my job because if I left my job at Dell, my green card process would have been reset for about four or five years. Mm. And I was like, I'm going to stick this out. And that was a long, painful process, to be honest. While you were working there, did you start putting together like your plans to start a business? Like how, do, how was that working for you? Because you had this inkling when you were in college, you spent you know, almost six years at Dell, all the while having this itch that you needed to scratch. So what does that look like while you're having a day job, but still needing to fulfill your entrepreneurial itch? I went into Dell more hopeful that I could start something on the side because in college, I was on a different visa. At Dell, I was on a work visa. And I'm like, oh, I'm making money legally now. Maybe I can start a side hustle. I had a few ideas. I wanted to make an educational platform for people who had just entered the workforce and like ups upskilled themselves. Talked to a few people. Like was like, okay, this time I was not making a logo though. I was like, I'll think about the <laughs> business model itself. Started it. Started like thinking about it, getting some advice, trying write it out, what it's going to be. I wanted to bootstrap it while working at Dell. I called a lawyer. I paid her three hundred bucks for a half an hour consultation, and she said, "You cannot start a business." Uh right now. This was 2014, right after I graduated. He's like, you have to wait for your green card. Starting a business, it wasn't like starting a business, but it was building something that I wanted to build. It was this manifestation of this need for competence and to build something that I felt good at because college was not 
I wasn't good at college. Working at Dell was at that time cool, but it wasn't really my thing. And I had this itch, I want to build something, but it was like denied. And I was like, if I make a dollar outside of my day job at Dell, I'm going to be kicked out of the country because I'll mm. be out of status. Having been denied the <laughs> painful uh, path of entrepreneurship, I decided to do the only thing that was legal for me, make content about entrepreneurship by interviewing people on a podcast, how they build their businesses mm. and how they operate in Austin's tech ecosystem. So I just went around outside of the day job, interviewing people who have seen Austin grow, uh, people who are building organizations, people who sold their companies. Like, how did you do it? In my head, that was scratching, uh, scratching the itch and also learning for the future. Because I was like, one day, me not being able to start a business is going to end. It was a long painful journey of doing side things when sure. it was podcasting it host turned into events and just more and more and more but it was all done for free over five six years just creating content on a podcast and then you said you have also have a lot of videos that are out right now too right so how long has the podcast been running because it sounds like it's been a while what i'm looking at is since 2017 yeah, so 2016 was when I launched the first podcast, The Austin Fire Show, that was very localized mm-hmm. to Austin. Then I made The Fire Show, which is the podcast you're looking at, which was a weird brand extension. I still <laughs> don't know how I feel about it. But I think podcasting is such a great way to content creation mm-hmm. because you don't have to be on camera. You don't have to be the one saying things. You, you just have, get to ask questions. And over time you build up this confidence like, okay, I don't mind how my voice sounds to me. Or, okay, I'll push out more content. It might have my face on it. Okay, I'll do a live stream. Okay, I might do a video. And all of these combined started pushing me towards, okay, I'll try live streaming. Oh, I like live streaming. I'm just going to test it out more. That turned into hosting panels on live streams or at organizations. That turned into Mm. live streaming for entrepreneur media at a conference. That turned into live streaming for other people and are for free. And that turned into uh, also, I, there's an organization called Three Day Startup, which mm-hmm. is like Startup Weekend. You get 60 students together. They teach you entrepreneurship in a very lean way about talking to customers. And they actually kick you out of the building to talk to your customers and come back on Saturday. But I really got into that. That taught me a lot about lean startup methodology. And I started using that, what I learned, to help people with their pitches. So all of this was going on while Dell just went along. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the first 10 episodes of your first podcast, right? Mm-hmm. What was publishing those podcasts like? Because I feel as if at no point here were you building maybe a social following or anything like that because you're just starting at this point, but you still decided to do this podcast. What was it like publishing that into kind of like the black hole of social media? Did you just publish it and hope somebody listened? Or what did you start to do to get new uh, ears into the show? I didn't realize that I was doing it at that time. I had a niche, the Austin tech startup niche in the business ecosystem in Austin. And what I would do is, it just kind of happened that I would want to interview people who were more prominent in that scene on social. And I went around interviewing them and hitting the right people, kind of like influencers in the industry. And they would start talking about it or Mm. they would post about it or they would refer other people. And so I started doing that only until the 20th 
on the 25th episode of that first show was I like, oh, this is what I'm doing. But in the start of it, the first 10 episodes was, how was your first episode? Because listening to my first episode, I wanted to shoot myself. I was like, I sound horrible. I make noises. It's horrible, your first episode. Um, my first 10 episodes were stellar. Joe Rogan, Lewis House, Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> they, all called me, they all called me for advice Fantastic. on how to do their own podcast. Uh, yeah, so that's how they went. No, they were pretty terrible. Uh, I don't know if they were terrible. I've always, I feel like I've been really pretty decent at conversations, but mm-hmm. as I look back now, I'm like, what was I doing with that intro? What were these questions? Yeah. Like, what was the format I was doing? Like, I, mm-hmm. this podcast has gone through three different iterations. I mean, all in the same RSS feed, but like, if you go back far enough, it was called like a day in the life, and mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, same thing. You just start, and you're kind of blind to what you don't know, but you do everything you can for me it was just posting on my making my identity like part of my public identity the the fact that i do this podcast and connecting with the right people and i had that thing too which is i listened to i haven't listened to my own episodes in a long time i don't want to maybe mm-hmm. one day if i'm tipsy enough but otherwise <laughs> i don't, want to. I don't so want to while you're building up this content are you consciously like look um, you know, I kind of want to cut to the chase for some of the listeners too. Like, are you consciously thinking like, I'm going to invite these successful tech entrepreneurs in Austin, Texas onto this show because I want to network. And then hopefully when I'm done with this green card process, I'll have an opportunity there. Yes. That was a part of it. Because Smart college, guy. I like that. Yeah. In college, I was president of an organization and I could see some people are willing to give you money if you build relationships. Mm. for them. So I could just fundraise to smoozing a bunch of people. And it was kind of like this, that if honestly, number one, if I can get to certain people, number two, give them some value. Everyone likes listening to themselves and recording a podcast. Mm-hmm. And number three, making them like me. And I just continue with that relationship. That's all I need to do. And later on, if I need to contact them for whatever, I have, the, I have a shot. And it's not like they're going to say yes or to give me like 50K, but just getting in front of the right people, giving them something that they actually like, which is sometimes hearing your own voice on a podcast and making them like you. That to me is one of the biggest things you can do in any industry. It doesn't matter. We're all just people. When you were looking for podcast guests, building this network with your end goal in mind, how were you identifying the right people, quote unquote? It was looking at who's popular. And not just who people like, but who posts a lot about this industry, who just talks about it. And is this on LinkedIn, Twitter? Where were you looking? This was mostly Facebook groups at that time. Mm, okay. Because I was in a lot of Facebook groups and I could see the same people pop up, pop up, pop up. I did that and I used those referrals to ask people, hey, who is really good at what they do? Whether that's sales, public speaking, PR, operations, customer validation. I used to ask people who is really, really good at what they do. So I can ask them, how can other people like my listeners get those tactics? So those were the two things I was looking for. I've never been, while I started off by looking at who's popular within a niche, uh, I personally never tried to go after somebody huge because it's like, sometimes I don't want to. And sometimes Mm -hmm. popular people don't have great stuff to say at all. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's the people who no one knows, but who have so much knowledge and expertise that it's like, wow, I'm really happy I interviewed you. 
So you're building up the chops and gaining the knowledge on how to build businesses, how to operate businesses, how to raise capital. And eventually you started coaching founders, right? And you helped founders raise over $770,000. When I say that number out loud, it doesn't sound as big as the six figures that it actually is, but that's no joke. Can you tell me a little bit about what your mentorship is like with these founders? And what are some of the tactics and strategies that you're teaching them to go out there and to raise money outside of networking? Because yes, everybody says it's all about who you know in relationship building. But what are some of the tactics that you can do outside of that? to you know, position yourself for a big cap race? This was mostly helping them win pitch competitions. Mm. That is my niche. Like I actually still coach people on fundraising, but those wins were all pitch competitions. I like to read because it helps me sleep. And I read fiction. It's, it's crap, but I love it. And it's one not crap. That, love fiction. Yeah. Yeah, Harry Potter. <laughs> Harry Potter. Three books. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I remember the creator of It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia saying, like, it doesn't matter how bad what you think of the character, all the character has to do is make sense as to why they're doing something. Even if they're doing the most horrible thing, it just has to flow. And I com- and with that as the foundation, I combined two things. Number one, my training from th- three day startup, which is a normal investor pitch. Story, problem, solution, market, competitive advantage, go-to-market strategy, what you're going to do with the money, traction, just all of that. So I had that baked in my brain. A second thing I did was, because this is super hard for founders, if, if your listeners have an idea right now and they love it and they're like, this is, this is amazing and they're having a hard time articulating it properly, that's completely normal. Completely normal. I had people just go over their pitches again and again and again and again and stitch them together so it could flow like a story. That was what I was really good at. And that because of my fiction, because of this training in just investor pitching, I could create a story that they could tell in 60 seconds or five minutes on stage than want them to competitions at WeWork twice. So that was a good year. That was back-to-back wins for companies and then at Mass Challenge. It was all just being able to tell a story on stage and making people believe it. Because a lot of times we hear stories, like we get, I don't know, 5,000 advertisements a day. Mm -hmm. But many of them were like, you're lying. I don't believe you. 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 It's making them believe it. Mm -hmm. That's the big thing that I did, help them win at pitch competition. And it was amazing. I, I still do it. What was the big hack to getting somebody to portray the message so that their audience would believe it? So it's three things. Number one is people getting what you're doing on a basic level, like what problem you're solving. Uh, The second layer is this is an opportunity. Not the fact that this company is doing it, but because of the size of the problem, because of the pain the customers are having, the current solutions still have gaps. There's an opportunity, which I understand, that can make money in, for somebody in this market. So number one, somebody getting it. Number two, whoever's listening, believing that it's a market opportunity. And number three, this goes into how much you might have raised some money, you might have some press, you might have some users, you might have some validation, you might have some revenue, making the audience believe that this team in front of me is the team that can actually capitalize on a market opportunity. And this is the horse I should bet on because if you have an idea, there's chances that 80 people within a 10-mile radius have the same idea. 
And some of them might be executing on it. But why would somebody bet on you, whether by giving you their attention as an advisor or a mentor or their money? That's the last part, which is why this team? And it's all stitching them together in a cohesive story is, I think, what makes a beautiful startup pitch. You spent all this time at Dell dreaming of starting a business. You created content for years. And I, by the way, I respect that hustle so much that you decided that you wanted to meet the right people, learn from those, those people, create content around doing it. And this whole time, haven't sold anybody anything. You're, you know, you're not raising money for yourself or anything like that. I respect that because I think too many people give up too early um, and they're looking to make money tomorrow. They think they're going to put out a podcast or two and then all of a sudden they're like insta-famous or whatever the case may be. But you're actually taking a, a really great approach toward this. What was the first business that you started you know, once you had the opportunity to do it? I started working at Dell 2014 mm-hmm. and I got my green card in August 2019. That was five years. Mm. When I got the green card, that was, we partied on the weekend. But uh, the first paycheck I ever got was by this conference. They flew me out to MC because I had just been making content a lot and it was podcast movement. And they were like, oh, we're live streaming for the first time. We have a live stream stage and we're going to sell people the replays. Would you want to MC? And I had reached out to the founder like, hey, can I help? Because I was just like asking people to help them for free. So they paid me for the flight, the hotel, and the ticket. And that was it. Not much money. Mm. That was my first like, paycheck because they reimbursed me. And I was like, is this legal? Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're all nervous whether or not you can actually cash the checks or not. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, is they, are they going to kick me out of their country? What I wanted to do was I realized that I liked the idea of courses and teaching people and just helping them do the things that I was doing, which was making content, building a brand, positioning yourself as a leader in an industry. And the fact that I had, I was very underconfident in college, in high school, did horribly in college, was not confident at all, couldn't put myself out there. I wanted to teach people that, how to use content to build confidence or how to build confidence and make content. Mm. So the first business was an online, it was honestly a product, not even a business. It was an online course called Two Week Content Bootcamp that I put out and then I hosted a few workshops about it. And I got, the first paycheck was like 25 bucks for one person buying a workshop ticket. And I was like, this can't be legal. They just gave <laughs> me their money. So that was the first thing. And this was, it's been less than a year. Yeah. It's been less than a year. So that turned into a few more things. But a workshop was the first time I actually got paid for my services. That's pretty awesome. And ever since, you know, you're, you've been building up that business and those products to continue to make a living for yourself. Yeah. So on the side, for sure. So one thing that I'm realizing right now that is a gap in my skills, I'm good at making products, selling them on a one-off basis, which is I'll make a course, make a workshop. Uh, I'll do some consulting. I'll do some coaching, building the backend. So that revenue is repeatable and scalable, whether that's for one product or a whole portfolio of products under one brand, that is 100% my gap. So since I was able to legally build something and sell it, I started off with uh, the MCing, started some consulting for a company about their content. I launched 
the course. And then I used to host small workshops and panels on events just to people add people to the sales funnel for the online course. Mm-hmm. I hosted a micro conference in January and it's been a collection of products which have given me some side on income that I've pretty much just put back into the business just to grow it because I realized at that time that it was going to be a long journey. And then I started working for a startup accelerator two months after I got the green card. So I was like, goodbye, Dell. It's been great. No one has mm-hmm. it. I'm going to leave. What is up, you lovely listeners? Sorry to interrupt the episode, but I did want to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, MikeMe.com. MikeMe has helped this podcast sound incredible over the last year and a half, and I put out every single episode with 100% confidence that it's going to sound amazing and it's going to be absolutely legit. Not to mention, having them work on my show has helped save an incredible amount of time and headache for me. So it's been one of the best investments that I've made in a very, very long time. If you have a podcast or you're looking to start your own, be sure to go to mikeme.com forward slash oversharing. Again, that's mikeme.com, M-I-C-M-E.com forward slash oversharing. And you'll get an episode edited for free when you purchase one of their podcast bundles. This is an incredible service. You're absolutely going to love it and you're going to love the team. But before I speak too much, let's get back to the episode. So in working at that startups accelerator, you kind of, um, are you scratching that itch of uh, entrepreneurship? I'm in Austin, right? And so, uh, South by was supposed to happen this mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. And we had, so the company that I was working for has a co-working business, a startup fund, and then a, uh, um, a startup accelerator. So we used to take, what, 150 people into the accelerator, and some of them we would actually invest in. Because South by got canceled, because the events got canceled, because co-working is basically dead, mm-hmm. because sponsor pulled out, they laid off 50% of the company including me two Uh, weeks ago. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's really interesting. The first moment that happened, I was like, oh, this is the most American thing to happen to me, getting (laughs) laid off at the start of economic downturn. But I posted about it. Um, Somebody was like, hey, let me help you with your online summit. Uh, Help me with my online summit. I looked at it and I realized that if I had stayed at that startup accelerator, which was fantastic, the team was exceptional. I definitely got a lot of my itch. If I had stayed there, and I would have, I would never had the courage to quit and do something full time. And getting laid off amid all of this craziness, it might turn out to be one of the best, worst things that happened to me. I'm actually pretty grateful for it. What do they say? They say something along the lines of our best moments come when we're in, our, when we're in the most adversity, right? Guess so. Let, let, let's see. I mean, I, I might completely fail. Uh, I, I'm pretty open about that because uh, I, I make a lot of content and I openly say that I'm showing this. And sometimes it's like you're putting yourself out there building something and you might fail very publicly. Mm. That's an interesting thing to think about. So let's see. That's a very interesting thing to think about. And you mentioned that you actually help people build some confidence around putting out their content for the first time whether it be through video, podcasts, or anything mm-hmm. like that. What are some of the steps that somebody can take? Because I know that the listener right now, like they're stuck at home. They can't necessarily get the job that they want or whatever it might be. Or right now, they're kind of thinking a little bit more about building this personal brand thing we've been talking about for the last mm-hmm. couple of years. Mm-hmm. Everybody is so scared about that first video that they put out, that first podcast they put out because they're worried that nobody's going to listen. There's nobody going to watch. What can one person do to start building that confidence and just get it out there anyway? I love conversations like this with people who uh, want to do that and are committed to because there's a difference of people who are like, 
that would be cool to do. Uh, and I tell them something, they're like, and that sounds too difficult. Versus people who are like, uh, oh yeah, I want to do it. Show me how. Those conversations are my favorite because I come from an internal place where I did not have the confidence to do it, did not have the skills to do it. In 2016, I bought lights, which I still have. And I bought a tripod and I was like, oh, I'm going to start video. And I stood in front of my camera and I was like, I have no idea what to do. Mm. I have no idea what to do or say. I don't know how, what's the point. One thing I'm not a big fan of is telling people, oh, just do it. Because that doesn't mean anything. Oops. (laughs) No, 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 no. It's right. It's 100% the right philosophy. But when you're like in a conversation with them, it's so hard for some people because it was hard for me to get to a point from not making any content to making a lot of content. It's, mm. it's to, uh, tipping your, uh, putting your toe in the water. What's the smallest thing you could do today? The smallest thing that'll make you, it'll be a micro, micro win. And you do it one day, second day you, do, day you do something bigger, 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 bigger. For example, the first time I live streamed for the podcast, I pointed the camera at my face and I was interviewing somebody. And I was like, hey, I'm going to live stream. He's like, yeah, sure. And I was shaking. My hands were just like going back and forth. In the first 10 minutes of the interview, the only thing I could think about was, oh my God, what will people think? These questions that pop up in everybody's head. What will people think? What if they think I'm stupid? What if they think what I'm saying is stupid? What if my questions are horrible? What if no one is, nobody is watching? What if everybody knows nobody is watching and no one cares what I have to say? I had these fears, but... I started off live streaming by just not looking at the camera, focusing on the person. And I did that two, three times. And then I started looking at the camera a little bit more and more until I got to a point where I can make a video fairly easily and push it out. And even though a part of me still is nervous, I can still do it. So my advice to people starting out would be take the smallest step and just repeat those steps again and again and again and again and again and again. Somebody takes a small step, they turn on the lights, they, they, they're looking at the camera now, they have their first video kind of ready to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm worried about when I publish this, is anybody going to watch it? What are people going to think of me? How do we get over some of those fears? There's a lot of shame involved in this question that we asked ourselves, right? What if this is a failure? It's the potential for feeling shame. We're already afraid of that. What if nobody likes it? What if it's what if no one cares? What if everyone thinks I'm stupid? I think it's putting stuff out there that makes you a little bit afraid of that every single time, but starting off slow so that at, at one point you feel that shame. Because I sometimes do too. I'm like, what if nobody watches this stuff? What if everyone's like, this guy's an idiot with his fast hands and just shouting at the camera? But it's with those small steps that I've taken over months or years, and people can do it over days or weeks. You inoculate yourself against that kind of feeling. You're like, I still feel it, but it's okay. It's like you can't be brave without fear. My advice to people for that would be make something that makes you that tiny little, tiny bit of rape. You could start off by just posting that video for 10 seconds, or you could just post it and try not to look at it ever again and do it again. It just comes with time, which is the horrible answer. I think that there's a lot of truth to that, though. And making the jump is really the hardest thing to is really the hardest thing to explain. And I'm guilty of telling people myself to just do it. Right? I kind of always just try to think of the worst case scenario 
And usually the worst case scenario is not that bad. It's not as bad as not giving yourself the shot in the first place. Let's say there's somebody that did take that step. They're now they're like publishing all of this content, which is awesome, but they're putting it on YouTube. They're putting out a podcast, let's say. But these are all places that a user or an audience would have to search to find them. Obviously, the first step is to, or not the first step, but one of the steps that one can take to start promoting themselves is then in social media or whatever it is to point back to a YouTube video. There's also now I've gotten over this fear of looking in the camera. I've gotten over this fear of publishing this content. Now the fear of promoting myself, that's a whole different monster because now not only am I talking about myself, now I'm about to talk about myself talking about myself. (laughs) Like, Is there any advice that you can give any of those people who are creating content but are like reluctant to promote it? Uh, So when you make content, right? you always end up with a certain theme for yourself, like for lack of a better word, a brand, Mm -hmm. Uh, whether you're obnoxious or funny or you're bubbly or you're just straight faced or you make stuff about content or shoes or calendars or hair. People look at that and they can find a certain theme in what you're saying. For the people who watch you, whether that's one person, or a thousand, you become one of the go-tos around that source. So when you think about promoting yourself, you have to think about who in the world would want to listen to that. And putting yourself in places, whether that's, well, not these days, physically or virtually, that you can connect with those people. And the first step is just connecting. For example, if I'm making a content about recruiting and hiring people, I would go out whether, if my target is recruiters, I would figure out where they are and just connect with them on Instagram, LinkedIn, or in real life and add them to my social media platform. If I meet five people a day, I'll just add them. And what happens is, uh, this is just to see. You could also do this in a group. But if people add you on a platform or they follow you, you pop up in their newsfeed. And so those initial connections are the starting of that snowball. Allow people to constantly see you pop up. I think of it as you make something, you connect with people and you allow people self-select and say, this person is either wonderful and I like them or this person, person is absolute crap. I know mm. for a fact that some people on my social probably don't are like, this guy's an idiot. <laughs> and we all have to live with that. I actually got an email recently, which was basically that. You're an idiot. And I was like, okay. Um, what were you an idiot about? I don't, I, don't understand. I don't understand that. Would you mind sharing what they said oh, you're yeah. an idiot about? I like making a certain kind of videos. I don't take them very seriously. I make them purely on social. I make that about content and I make them super fast. I, I've got hip hop music in the back because I just like that style. Somebody emailed and said, hey, I, I'm sharing this because I really care about you and I want you to be better. <laughs> and so it went off and said, you make too much, too much content. Yeah, you, it's, you should focus on quality versus quantity because you post every 24 48 hours and the people you shouldn't curse so much because it looks unsophisticated the people that you impress with your videos should not be the people that uh, you should be impressing or they're worth impressing and it was some other things and it was sign somebody i couldn't find them on social but i looked <laughs> at it and the first thing was like oh there's sink, this sinking pit. Like, are they right? Am I doing something wrong? When you get criticism, a part of you is like, hmm. And then I realize their worldview is just very different from mine. Mm-hmm. I believe in making content of a certain type and they don't. 
they can go screw themselves. <laughs> it's it's in- they're, they're not my market. Yeah. It's interesting that the person that decided to email you all, all the, probably created a new email, by the way, if you can't find them on the internet, right? Maybe. Um, cared about you so much that they couldn't put their real name in it. And then also, you're taking, they're trying to give advice to somebody who's creating content. It sounds like they're not creating it themselves, which sucks. I, I honestly feel bad for that person. I, I can't imagine a life where the only thing I had to do that day was to shit on somebody else and not even tell them who I was. So that sucks. Yeah. But I like your attitude toward it. And I think the next time that somebody tells you that you're cursing too much, you like hip hop, you're producing content every 24 hours and that it's like off the cuff, just think of like what Gary Vaynerchuk is doing because it sounds relatively similar. And I think he's doing pretty well for himself. I've heard of that guy. I know, right? <laughs> I've heard of that guy. And even, and even for yourself. And the, I think the next thing I want to talk about here is like, bro you've overcome a lot of challenges. One is you immigrated here without the ability to make any money, kind of pursuing the dream of like an entrepreneurial future for yourself. In addition to that, you have this fear of creating content and publishing it, which you found a way to do it anyways, and then have built incredible content. And your cadence here is fantastic just talking to you. You know, I've talked to at least 250 people on this podcast now, mm-hmm. not including the people that I don't, uh, that I don't publish. Like you can you can feel this energy and this confidence even through the, uh, the, the Zoom, like the Zoom call, right? So I really commend you for that. And I think the next, the next step for someone is like, hey, we told them how to get over their fears. We told them how to actually start toward the next process. The networking tip that you have of just adding somebody. Like you don't necessarily have to be like, hey, check out my YouTube video. But it's like you just add somebody and that's a way to start promoting yourself and building confidence in community that way. All of those are amazing. Now I think the next step, you were building content for four years before you asked for a sale or to sell this course. What was that first conversation like for you? What was the call to action for you? You know, I know that your first gig was 25 bucks, but it's like, what was it like putting out that first ask? And like, what are some things that people should include in that? Oh, one thing also uh, I forgot to mention, I think promoting yourself is tying your content to your audience's problems. So if anybody ever says that you meet physically or virtually and they're like in your market and they have a certain problem, if you've been making content around their problems for a while, you can just be like, hey, here's something I made that might help you. That's promoting, but it's not sleazy because they mentioned a problem that you can help with. When I think about selling something and it's up and down, which is sometimes it goes really well, sometimes it doesn't. I try to think about how to give people certain outcomes that I know I can get them because I've done it myself, uh, usually for myself or somebody else. That first workshop was simply uh, how to make amazing videos on your phone. And I had that workshop. And then the course was targeted all towards getting attention on social media to get more opportunities. The outcome isn't getting attention on social media. That's somebody trying to be famous. While that's fantastic, it doesn't really give you anything except an ego. So I put it into if you want opportunities to collaborate with people, if you want partnerships, if you want JVs, if you want to be seen as this leader and use that for certain things for money because I had not made money at that time. All my talking was tied to that outcome for people. And it's really difficult for anybody who's building something to think of one tangible outcome you can get somebody because as I've coached founders, it's like they have this amazing idea. It's hard to boil it down and give clear messaging. 
and getting feedback and having people tear it apart, whether that was a workshop, an online course, a conference, and being able to hear that sounds horrible is uh, true. Like when we, <laughs> I called one of my uh, mentors uh, yesterday and I was like, oh yeah, we're hosting a summit. And he's like, what's the name? And I said, online first 2020. And I could just hear the pause. And I was like, you hate it. He's like, yeah. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> well, <laughs> we named it already. So it was too late. But it's just putting it in terms of value. I think that's, those are all like the most incredible points that you could have given somebody, especially today, man. So I appreciate all of that. You mentioned that you're starting, you're, you're launching a summit. What's going to be involved in this summit? It's obviously going to be online, but what's going to, what's going to be involved in it and who is it made for? Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, tying it to one of the questions you had before about uh, when you start making content, this summit, which is, uh, I'll talk about the scale first, which is 50 people or four days. I started off with a workshop and a panel, an online course, then uh, a microconference. Within that, there were free events and now a summit. So like content, like building any kind of product, it's this eventual scale up to something. So if anybody listening is like, I want to do something big, you can start small and eventually get there. I got laid off at the job because frankly, the company that I was working for didn't charge members $300 for membership to a co-working space. And when nobody wants to sit each other, next, sit next to each other, and the company that is charging $300 doesn't provide enough value digitally mm. for a customer to justify paying that cost, mm. you're dead in the water, right? Cancellations, cancellations, cancellations. A lot of my other friends, the business owners, they're losing money, revenue, there's pay cuts, there's layoffs, there's furloughs. I kept hearing, oh, some people are actually growing because in this weird time, always in recessions, some people grow. And right now, people who are growing in two, number one, they solve a problem and it's not a luxury need, right? They're doing something which people want and they're doing it in a way which works as digital first. Like if I want coffee and I can't go to the grocery store, there's a place that I can subscribe to for coffee. Uh, there's this company called Atlas Coffee Club, which is doing amazingly well. The companies which are in, which are in need for a certain market and then people who are digital first, we want to help bring people together, those speakers, to teach other people who have not gone digital, who are not acquiring customers online, who have the pain of social distancing really hurt their customer acquisition and sales channels. We want to help those people build these revenue streams through digital content, uh, products, and offerings. And we're trying this out. We launched today, like the registration page. So you mentioned something about fears. Like I'm afraid it's going to be a complete failure. And I'm also excited that it'll be a complete success. And I have to live in that uncertainty for three, four more weeks. That's the cost of building something. You, you've built several things, right? Mm -hmm. It's the cost of building something with a later payoff. When's the summit happening? So we've got 45 sessions going on Monday, May 11th to Thursday. May 14th, tracks are a day each. So day one, we're going all deep diving into digital first business models, which are currently growing. Day two is all customer acquisition. Day three is how companies are currently adapting their business models. And day four is how to prepare for an unknown future and survive any economic downturn. So people can attend and watch all these sessions live. They can buy replays. 
And just honestly, I hope this is helpful for people who attend and they get something out of it that's like, wow, I'm glad I went to it, implemented these few tactics that I did, and it turned out my business. We were really trying to do that. And it might be a little bit of trying to boil the ocean, but we might be doing it too big this time with 50 mm. people, but we're like, we're doing it. Man, if 50 people brought five people each, like it should turn out pretty, pretty good, I feel like, right? Brother, that is the exact hope. And I, I, this is what's interesting about entrepreneurship. I, I, I've never considered myself an entrepreneur. I've always considered myself entrepreneurial. And this is as long as you have, still have a house to live in, as long as you have food. And like, this is just a game. It's with consequences, but it's just fun to figure out what you're capable of and going further and further along with that. Yeah. I love that, man. Thank you so much for everything that you shared. I mean, I love that we were able to give or you were able to give a step-by-step process on how somebody can begin to create their content, get over those fears, and then start building a network, uh, which is you know paying off dividends. Now, I mean, look, it, from how I see it, you're, you mentioned that all of this could potentially be a blessing of losing that uh, consulting job that you had. And it's like all of this network that you've built over the last four, five, six years, all of the content that you've built could potentially lead to a really huge payout uh, with this digital summit that you were forced to create because of the current circumstance, which could pay out a lot bigger than any consulting gig was going to give you before. So I just want to affirm that I love the work that you put in toward it. I wish you the best of luck with everything that you're doing for that summit as well, too, because you know they always say that the blessing is in the blow up, right? So like maybe this is the blow up and the blessing is this whole thing. So I love that. And I think it's going to be something awesome given all the work that you've already put in. Uh, but before I ask the last question of today, Moby, if somebody wants to connect with you after today or register for the summit, where can they find you? My username on pretty much everything is not that Moby because I'm not <laughs> the DJ. Yeah, <laughs> that was stupid. I, I, I Dude, it. no, that's hilarious, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah no, I, I love it. I, lo- I love that username. I connect with me anywhere. Just hit me up on a DM or email me at moby at thefireshow.com. And for the summit, go to onlinefirstsummit.com, a name that I like, but my mentor hates. And I hope, and by the way, you can look through all the schedule and see what works for you so that you can tailor it to your needs. And by the way, dude, I really appreciate you inviting me here. I appreciate that Jasmine uh, introduced us. We had a great convo before this. And I'm also pumped to learn from you and what you've done during the summit. Thank you so much, man. I appreciate that in your time as well. For the last question of the day, you mentioned that you went to a boarding school that was a lot like Harry Potter's school, right? So were you Hufflepuff, Slytherin, <laughs> or what's the third one? Uh, Hufflepuff, Ravenclaw, Slytherin, and Gryffindor. Ravenclaw or Gryffindor. Which group were you in? I think emotionally, I fell into a Hufflepuff, which is the worst. But looking back at my life, I I, I mentioned that doubt. I was either, I was probably a Ravenclaw because I was a prefect for a house and then I was voted most likable. I just never felt it. Those doubts and insecurities... What the hell am I saying? I'm a Gryffindor. Screw Hufflepuff. (laughs) (laughs) I have a question. Is Slytherin actually one of those groups? Slytherin as in in Harry Potter? Yeah. Yeah. They're the evil ones. 
Okay. That's what I thought. I'm not going to lie. When you were mentioning that whole thing, I was like, oh, it sounds like the Slytherin to me just because you mentioned that you guys were kind of cocky at your own school. (laughs) I love it, man. Thank you so much for your time again, dude. I, I really appreciate it. To the listener, we really appreciate your time and attention. If you love the episode, we would dig a five-star review. And if you didn't like it that much, feel free to stick it to us, but subscribe anyway, because we're going to have a ton of incredible people just like Moby, but not that Moby, back on the show. Have a good one. Bye.